This morning I opened our service uh, with the words of Romans chapter 8, verse 31. And I suspect they were familiar words to some of you. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? They are great words of comfort uh, for the people who God is for. Um, Not necessarily such great words of comfort for those who God may be against. But the question is, who is God for? Uh, And who is God against? Uh, And as we see uh, through the book of 1 Samuel, we see um, various episodes of rejection, either people rejecting God or God rejecting people. Uh, And we see that God is a God um, who is for some uh, and against others. Uh, And we get, as as we uh, skim through Samuel chapter 1 to 4, we'll see today uh, a snapshot of the kinds of people that God is for Um, and those who God is against. Whose side is God on? Chapters 1 to 4, I'm summing it up in these words, uh, out with the old and in with the young. So this, uh, the book of 1 Samuel is written of Israel, or it begins of the nation of Israel in the time of the judges. Now, if you were here with us last year when we looked at the book of Ruth, a book also written in the time of the judges, you will remember that I spent just as much time looking at the very last verse of the book of Judges that summarises for us um, what the time of the judges was really like. So Judges, just a couple of pages earlier, if you've got one of your church Bibles there, chapter 21, verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Just because there was no king in those days, it doesn't mean there was no formal rule uh, and no one in authority. Um, This was meant, Israel was meant to be a nation under God. Uh, God had formed them, God had delivered them from Egypt, Um, he'd performed mighty miracles before them, um, and God was to rule them. God, in fact, was to be as their king. Um, And he generously littered his people with priests and prophets uh, by whom his people could uh, seek guidance. So so people weren't left in the dark as to how they were meant to live under God's rule. They weren't left in the dark at all. But the other nations around Israel had kings. And the Israelites were self-conscious of this fact, this difference between them and the the other nations. And they blamed their lack of a king uh, for their own chaos that they kept finding themselves in. even though they had a king and his name was God. But into the mess, and particularly in times of national threat from their neighbours, individuals would rise up from the nation of Israel uh, and they would organise and inspire the Israelites and they would heave them out of whatever rut they'd managed to find themselves in. And anyone who assumed this sort of authority was known in those days as a judge. Um, partly because judging is something they would do. They would decide matters between people. That's what uh, men in leadership did in those days. Um, But while judge was linked to that role of passing judgments, it also just became their title for any sort of warrior, ruler, or or whoever it was in charge at the time. Uh, The book of Samuel teaches us that Eli, the priest, in in the episode we saw in Samuel chapter 1, was considered a judge. Uh, At the end of chapter 4, we learn that he judged Israel for uh, 40 years. By the time we meet Eli, though, he's in a sort of semi-retirement uh, and, then, and we're talking about out with the old at this stage. Eli um, 
uh, is in semi-retirement and he is on his way out. In fact, our introduction to him in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 3 is to say that it's his sons now who are the priests in Shiloh. Um, but Eli is kind of the elder statesman. He's still hanging around with a fair amount of influence as well. In chapter 1, our introduction to Eli is mixed. You know, there's no clear indication of exactly what we're meant to make of the man in chapter 1. Uh, but it is a bit odd what happens. If you were paying attention during the reading, you can follow it along now. In verse 9, he's sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple, the temple, when he sees a woman at the house of God, distressed and crying, lips moving as if she's speaking, although her words are silent. And instead of recognising the obvious, that this is a woman at the house of God in earnest prayer, he jumps to the apparently bizarre conclusion that she's drunk. And so he scolds her for being so. Now, there's a few possible explanations for why Eli would have such a strange knee-jerk reaction at the house of God. Maybe his response says something about just how distressed and emotionally unrestrained Hannah was in that moment. Uh, In her prayers, perhaps she seemed hysterical. And so he thought uh, it was quite reasonable to think she was unbalanced and out of her mind. But maybe it says something about the state of the nation at that time uh, that he would assume a woman in unrestrained emotion is drunk. Uh, and not just uh, in earnest prayer. Or maybe it says something about Eli, that he had no pastoral intuition or sensitivity to just detect what's going on in a person's life. Maybe it says something about what Eli knew his sons were getting up to. We learn later on that Eli knows uh, that his sons, who are acting as priests, are actually sleeping with the women in service uh, at the temple. Or maybe we've just come across Eli on a bad day and none of this is reflective of anything at all. Uh, but I think everything is written in here for a reason. But whichever way we take this, uh, this strange introduction to Eli, something is either not right with Eli or not right with Israel. Something isn't right. For an experienced priest and judge to misjudge a woman's earnest prayer at the temple for drunken revelry, something is not right. Now, he somewhat recovers in the rest of the chapter. Eli realises his mistake and he wishes Hannah well. He hopes with her that she receives an answer to her prayer. Uh, It's not all bad for Samuel. It's why I say it's a mixed introduction. And when when Hannah returns with her family a few years later with her long-awaited son, the answer to her prayer, Eli continually blesses her and her family. We see in chapters 2 good, natural responses, you would think, from uh, from a priest who was there at the beginning. But Eli is well and truly on his way out. Make no mistake, the plot thickens in chapter 2. We learn that Eli's two sons, who have taken on the mantle of priests from their father, they are utterly corrupt. There is no reading between the lines necessary when you get to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 12, it says, The sons of Eli were worthless men. Like I said, no reading between the lines necessary. And the very next line is a pretty damning thing to to say of a priest. They did not know the Lord of a priest. Now, when God set up the nation of Israel and he gave Moses all the laws, God gave every tribe of Israel a land inheritance except for the priests. The priests were provided for by the sacrifices that the people would bring to God. But in chapter 2... Even without knowing what the pattern of this was meant to be with sacrifices coming and what is set aside for the priest or not, you can see that something is wrong in the way these priests tax the nation. 
I'm going to read these verses, chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, and I think everyone should be able to see that there is something wrong here. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Uh, Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give me meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, that's what they were meant to do. Um, If the man said, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, the priest or his servant would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. I mean, you can hear the aggression in those verses, can't you? The author describes the prongs of the fork. There's three of them, for crying out loud. How he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, whatever they could get their hands on, they don't discriminate. He would take it for himself. And this is what they did to all the Israelites who came there. And in those next verses, the the ones we continued to read, we learn that they weren't just satisfied with whatever came out Uh, on their fork, but they were picky. They were choosing the first fruits for themselves, insisting on raw meat so they could cook it to their liking and threatening violence to anyone who recoiled at their pushiness. These These are ugly men through and through. But it gets worse. Eli and his family are well and truly on the way out because we learn that Eli knows what's going on. And he even knows in chapter 2, verse 22, that his sons are abusing their position to get sex. They are sleeping with all the women they employ to serve at the temple. The inevitable fallout of this sort of promiscuity may shed some further light on why Eli assumed bad behaviour when he saw a woman in distress at the door of the temple. And though it certainly certainly doesn't justify why he might give such a woman a dressing down uh, like he gave Hannah in chapter 1. But Eli knows what his sons are up to, and in one respect, he does the right thing at this point. He steps up, he gets cross at them. Uh, We see in chapter 2 how he rebukes his sons, but they don't listen, and he takes no further action. He just allows them to keep on profaning the name of the Lord in his temple. And then at the end of chapter 2, a mysterious, unnamed man of God appears. And in verses 27 to 34, he gives Eli this essential message out with the old. Verse 29, he says, you've scorned God, you've made yourself fat on the offerings of the people. You know, fat is one of only two physical descriptions we do get of Eli. He is a fat man and his eyes are failing. I think there's something uh, to learn in both of those things. In verse 31, this, this man of God says to him that God will cut off your strength. And in verse 34, he says, you will know it is the will and work of God because both your sons will die on the same day. It's a pretty bleak prophecy. And so, out with the old, it is. And in with the young. So in the midst of men behaving badly, men no less of power and men who should absolutely know better, we're introduced to a small child, to Samuel. And we get just enough of a picture of his parents, Elkanah and Hannah, to see that they are authentic and honourable servants of God. Hannah can't have children, 
But in her sadness, she cries out to God and she makes a pretty rash promise in some ways in chapter 1, verse 11. If you give me a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and he will live as if permanently under a vow to God. I may have told this story once before. I'm doing this more and more. Um, I, I once worked with a lady who told me that when, uh, when he was young, her son got seriously sick. And so informed by her Catholic upbringing, she was driven to pray. And she made a promise to God. God, if my son gets better, I will go to Mass every single day for the rest of my life. She looked me in the eye and she said, and my son did get better. And I did go to Mass every single day for a long time. I I mean, I don't anymore, but I feel really bad about that now. Now, I don't tell that story to mock her because I understand her. I understand what it's like to make a promise, to feel something so uh, strongly that you think really you will hold strong and do whatever it takes for forever, um, and she doesn't. I understand her. I have more difficulty understanding Hannah, in fact, in this story, although I do admire Hannah because she does have a son, the son she prays for, And when her firstborn and only son is weaned, she brings him to Eli's temple at Shiloh and she leaves him there as a permanent apprentice to the old priest. And I love the development we see of the boy Samuel across chapters 2 and 3. At the same time that we're learning about the aggression and the greed and the promiscuity of the priests of God's house, we hear this sweet little story of a small child. In chapter 2, right between the information that Eli's sons are using their three-pronged forks to steal food and the revelation that they're sticking other things where they shouldn't as well, we read this in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, like a little priest for vests, uh, a little vest for priests, I'm sorry. Uh, And his mother used to make for him a little robe and she'd take it to him each year when she went up with her husband, to offer the yearly sacrifice. Isn't that sweet? A small boy just loved and cared for by his mum. The old guard is on its way out and the new is innocently and charmingly closing in. And the changing of the guard takes place in the quite famous story of chapter 3. and Maybe you've heard it before. Chapter 3 tells us that the word of the Lord has become very rare in the days of Eli. Hardly surprising when you think of the conduct of Eli and his sons. That probably shouldn't surprise us. But a couple of scoundrels can't actually keep God quiet for long. And so one night, everyone's gone to bed. Eli in his room, Samuel nearby but in the temple. And Samuel hears his name, Samuel. The boy hops up and he runs to the old man. Here I am, Eli, you called my name. And Eli says, I didn't call your name, go back to sleep. The Bible tells us it was the Lord who was calling to Samuel. The same thing happens again. Samuel, the little boy hops up, runs to Eli, here I am, you called my name. The priest Eli says, I didn't call your name, go back to bed. Samuel innocently goes to bed and again he hears his name. Samuel, the little boy hops up. Runs to Eli the priest, you called my name. And finally, the dim-sighted priest sees. This time he says in verse 9, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Eli runs back to his bed, he lies down to sleep, and then he hears his name, this time twice, Samuel, Samuel. 
And he says, speak for your servant hears. And God reveals to the boy Samuel essentially the same as what the unnamed man of God of chapter 2 had revealed to Eli. Out with the old. Eli and his family are gone. And as Samuel grows in stature and in favour with the Lord and men, the Lord is with him. And through him, the Lord's word comes again and again to Israel. Brings us to about the end of chapter 3. I did say we were doing chapter 4 as well. Here it is in a nutshell. Israel goes to war against the Philistines. Israel suffers early losses, heavy losses. The army of Israel sends to Shiloh where Eli's sons are priests. And Eli's ratbag sons bring with them the Ark of the Covenant of God and they march with the Ark of the Covenant into battle. They're treating it like some sort of lucky charm that maybe our God will be with them if we bring him with us. The Philistines are initially nervous, but they pull themselves up by the bootstraps. They man up for a fight and they defeat Israel. And on the same day, just as was prophesied, they kill both of Eli's sons. And they make off with the ark of God. Now when fat Eli hears the news, he falls backwards off his chair and his great weight snaps his neck and he dies in an instant. One of Eli's daughters-in-law also hears the news. She's heavily pregnant to her recently killed and cheating husband. And she instantly goes into labour and dies in the process, having just enough time to name her son Ichabod, which means something like, the glory has departed. It's a pretty sad ending uh, to uh, Eli and his line. Out with the old, but in with the young. The question I asked at the start is, who is God for? You know, in Romans chapter 8, um, uh, <laughs> what are the words again? If God is for us, who can be against us? But who is it that God is for? And we see a bit of a snapshot in these chapters um, of the kinds of people that God is for in Samuel 1 to 4. First of all, God hears the prayer of a woman in distress. And I love that picture uh, that a temple that is under the guard of ratbag men, um, there is one woman who comes in the deepest of distress. She speaks for herself to God. She doesn't need to go through any priest. And God hears her prayer and he answers it. Now, of course, God is doing something much bigger in all of this than just answering the single prayer uh, of a woman who's feeling sad about the circumstances of her life. He's, he's putting into motion a great plan that's going to bring in something much, much more. But there's still something deeply personal uh, and lovely, I think, that we learn about the love uh, and care and compassion of God. Uh, we learn a fair bit uh, from the song that she sings in response, and I sort of skipped over that in, in chapter 2. You can see it's written in verse um, this is her response. Um, I'm just going to pick out a couple of verses uh, after the Lord has answered her prayers. In chapter 2, verse 5, she says, Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. Can you imagine the priests stealing food? They were full, they've hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The baron has borne seven sons. She hasn't borne seven sons, she's just born one, but she feels full. She who has many children is forlorn. We learn over and over in Scripture the kinds of people that God feels compassion for, um, those who are downtrodden, those who are in need, uh, those who are in distress. A barren woman is a, is a classic example throughout Scripture. Someone who is poor and in need and hungry is another classic example. Verse 8, 
He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honour. Who else is God for? A small boy named Samuel. A boy who was chosen before birth, um, who was chosen even you know, without any will of his own as his mother just made a commitment on his behalf. Um, a small boy who gets carried away in God's plan, but nonetheless uh, learns to respond to God's will, respond to God's word, and to grow not only in stature but also character uh, before God and men. Now, in the, in the book of Samuel, we learn that the people are blaming their problems. The people of Israel are blaming their problems on the lack of a king. But God will send a king in about a thousand years' time. Uh, in his wisdom, God will send the kind of king that will show to us, once and for all, um, the kinds of people that God is for. Jesus Christ is the king. 1,000 years on from the book of Samuel, 2,000 years ago today. Born of a woman, born into poverty, born, in fact, into disgrace and scandal, born as a baby, small and vulnerable, thoroughly dependent on his, bro- on his mother for milk and care, born to be raised up from the dust, like uh, Samuel 2 verse 8, I think it was, um, raised up from the dust to sit with princes and inherit a seat of honour. A king who was born to shepherd his people like so many faithless shepherds have failed to do in the past. And actually born to judge as well. We also learn about the kinds of people that God is not for in these early chapters. He isn't necessarily for those who just claim his name for themselves. Or for those who have a formal position working on God's behalf like the priests Eli and his wicked sons. He's also not for those who wish to treat God as just some sort of lucky charm that they can carry with them into battle and hope that he'll bring them good luck um, as some sort of talisman might be. I'm going to finish just by uh, highlighting again um, some of Hannah's prayer. And I know in the the flow of the story, um, we skipped over her prayer, um, but there is so much in here um, to... uh, to to show us the heart of the Lord uh, as this woman responds with praise. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Verse 8. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honour. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. In verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. Verse 9, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. If God is for us, uh, who can possibly be against us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, how vividly it has been um, kept and restored for us. Father, we thank you that we can read it. We thank you that in uh, the people that we learn of, these people of history, we can see uh, elements of ourselves uh, and we can also uh, feel their needs uh, and we can also feel their needs met. Lord, we give you praise for the way uh, that you showed compassion on Hannah, the way you answered her prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, that your work for Hannah to give her Samuel 
uh, wasn't the end of your work, but it was actually just the beginning uh, of restoring order to your kingdom. And Lord, as we think back on young Samuel as he grew in stature, Father, we also look back on your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who grew uh, as a boy into a man uh, and, and gave his life for us. And we thank you that in the story of Samuel and in the story of Christ, we see exactly who you are for and we can know that uh, those uh, who you are for um, will always stand. And we pray that you'll help us um, to appreciate your sovereign will, uh, your great power over all the world and all that happens. And we pray that you'll help us uh, to also, uh, like Samuel, uh, learn to hear your word and respond and act. Uh, so that whether we've got the role models or not around us, that we may learn from you as our King and our Lord uh, what it is to live for you and to please you with all our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.